This is Cambridge Judge Business School's online knowledge centre, with expert commentary, analysis, and insights into the issues of the day. Gaps in communication around carbon capture and storage (CCS) have been revealed through research headed by Dr. David Rayner. Advocates describe CCS as the single biggest lever to combat climate change, while the environmental groups continue to express concern over the continued use of fossil fuels and the impact on their preferred renewable energy sources. Dr. Rayner says the new research into communication materials has uncovered two major issues. The main producers of the information are those who support individual projects, like governments and project developers. Some of that material is not terribly good, he says, questioning its purpose, and of little use to those actually genuinely seeking information. The second issue is that the information itself is not helpful to a layperson or member of the public who finds that there may be a CO2 pipeline going through his back garden or a CO2 storage site near his home or his community. I think the real the real challenge is that often the way we communicate is amongst technical elites. So if you would show a, a diagram that a typical geologist used to not just to a, a member of the lay public, but even a very well educated person who doesn't have any sort of ge- training in geology or earth sciences, they would really have no idea how to make heads or tails of it. So, for example, it's quite typical that you would see a diagram of a carbon capture and storage project that would show a picture of a tree that was about yay high, and then they would show underground, maybe three tree lengths deep, a CO2 storage site. So you have the CO2 storage site that's it looks like I don't know, a few tens of meters below the ground. In reality, that storage site will be closer to about a kilometer underground. Now, if you were to look at that, and it's first image you would you would see if you if you looked up a CCS on something like Wikipedia, which I tell my students not to, but you immediately think, oh, this is carbon dioxide that's being stored not very deep, not very not, not very far from the surface, and you can easily imagine pathways by which it might reach the surface. So that's really driving this whole NIMBY approach, isn't it? Not in my backyard. Yes. Yeah, so so the biggest challenge is if you imagine putting these either pipelines, CO2 pipelines, taking it from the capture plant to the storage site or the storage site itself, and and people imagining that the CO2 will leak, will somehow uh, find its way to the local community. We've had a a couple of research projects that that have looked at this. One, together with colleagues in in Europe, where we've looked at projects in uh, the Netherlands, in Germany, uh, in Spain, Poland, as well as the UK. Uh, And we found that in certain countries particularly Germany, it's actually quite controversial. And there, and, and there are a number of reasons why it's controversial, but, but one, of, one of the most obvious is that for onshore storage in particular, and that's one of the things they were discussing uh, in Germany, the local community is concerned about the impact it will have on uh, house prices, that it might have on human health. Uh, there are always uh, anecdotal examples uh, from... Uh, Mammoth Mountain in California, where uh, a couple of ski patrollers might die in a in a, a crevasse uh, and, and die from CO two asphyxiation. So so the, so you can you can find some risk, and and the problem is that there might be some small even negligible risk. But if you ask people in the local community, well, what benefits do I derive from this project? It's much harder, right? At, at a global level, carbon dioxide capture and storage is helping 
<laughs> helping deal with climate change. But when you're, when you're a homeowner and you're worried about, well, what does this mean for me? Even if you care about the environment, you might think, well, why am I the one bearing the risk? Why am I the one that has to worry about the CO2 seeping out of the ground? And so that's the biggest challenge. How do you, how do you create a value proposition for local communities to be willing to accept this risk, even if it is small or negligible? So how do you? Well, one thing to do is to try and get the communications right. So if you are trying to explain this to a, to a, to a local populace, try not to leave them with the impression that the CO2 or the carbon dioxide is uh, 50 meters deep, but rather that it really is a kilometer deep. Uh, try and give them some sense of understanding of, of, of these maybe basic geological processes where the, the, the geological formation is not going to allow the CO2 to escape very easily. There's lots of work that's going on, going on in colleagues in earth sciences here and elsewhere looking at these, uh, looking at these issues. But, but to try and give a, a truer sense of the risk. So that's, that's one issue. So doing your, the job of communication is better. But then the other side is also making the value proposition more attractive. So is, is there ways of making the local community benefit? And we do this all the time. You know, it's, it's, I find it often awkward. I go to speak to uh, the energy industry, which cite all sorts of difficult pieces of, of infrastructure around the world, which are far more hazardous than, than CO2. And they do it. Why? Well, they, they provide a, some sort of athletic stadium or they provide some compensation to the local community or some way of, of, of providing benefits that the local community can realize and say, OK, yes, we might be accepting some small risk, but we, we also see some benefits that we derive. So who do we listen to? Do we listen to the scientists? Do we listen to the researchers? Do we listen to the NGAs? Or do we just have to take it from the developers and we don't trust them too much because they've got too much involved in it? They've got too much finance involved in it. So, so one of the biggest challenges that we face is that the, the, those who mostly communicate these issues are advocates of the technology. So uh, governments who are supporting these projects, maybe subsidizing these projects, and the developers, largely the energy industry. Neither, as our polling going back a number of years, but also many other polls show, are very well you know, trusted by, by, by the vast majority of the public, whether pro or anti-environment. So, so, so one of the big challenges is the, the, the major sources of information are from the least trusted sources. Uh, further, we actually find that, that people aren't even likely to go to these sources. So not only are they not trusted, but they're not even very likely, the average person isn't likely to consult these sources in the first place. They're not likely to go to a developer, to a Shell or a BP or an Eon, uh, and, and get information. Uh, where do they go? They tend to go to Wikipedia. They tend to go to sources uh, that are uh, uh, easily accessible, or they tend to go to uh, groups like environmental NGOs, environmental pressure groups like Greenpeace, like Friends of the Earth, and so on. They actually are more, are more likely to consult the, the Wikipedias, but they don't trust those as much either. They tend to, you know, if you ask them who you placed your greatest trust in, independent scientists or university scientists tend to get the most positive view. Now, the problem is there's very little incentive for, for university scientists to do active communication, especially active communication that supports a project. So, so you, you're left with a situation where those who are most trusted and those best, you know, most consulted tend not to be the, the sources that, that are, are the ones generating that information, generating that communications material. So that, I think that itself is, is a serious obstacle uh, in, in this, you know, what you would hope 
to be a sort of a public discourse on the subject. Final point, the way forward? A, a big problem is that it tends to be still a very um, top-down, technocratic view of communications. In spite of the fact that everybody uses the Internet, it's striking that they don't do it in any way that's interactive. It's just a, it's, it's a one-way broadcast. There, there's no way of, of, of addressing what are often quite legitimate, serious concerns that a member of the public might have and, and answering it. It's entirely still viewed as, as a top-down way. It's entirely still viewed almost, uh, again, almost entirely uh, from a technical point of view. So you're explaining the technical details of the issues. You're not explaining these other issues to do with you know, social concerns, political concerns, economic considerations. The communication is almost purely at a technical level. And if, it, if it's, it's just developers communicating the, these, these uh, often too complex, uh, detailed information, it's not surprising that the public is left with a sort of bad taste in their mouth. Dr. Rayner, thank you very much. This programme was produced by the Cambridge Judge Business School as part of its online broadcast series. Thank you.